0: Our next speaker is a colleague of mine at UAB, Adia Rana. Uh, Adia is a, uh, actually grew up, uh, went to high school in Birmingham and then um, went to Brown University where she was uh, on faculty there. And we had the good fortune of recruiting her back to Birmingham. Her focus is on ending the HIV epidemic like a lot of us, but she's, uh, this is her academic pursuit. And she has an incredible network leading the UAB CFAR's ending the HIV epidemic effort uh, with extension throughout the entire state of Alabama, but also Mississippi and Louisiana. Um, and of course, along the way, she encounters um, a lot of different populations, a lot of disparities and health disparities, but also just what people are up against. And so she's a perfect person to give us an update and an overview of health disparities in the U.S. with the HIV population.
1: All right, good morning. Can everyone hear me? That's good, okay, great. So thanks, Mike, um, IAS, HRSA, for inviting me to speak uh, in beautiful San Diego. It was really tough to make the decision to come out here. So um, as uh, Mike mentioned, I'm gonna be talking a little bit um, about, oh, That sounds better. Yes, okay. Um, About uh, reducing, or the title I was given was Reducing Health Disparities Among Disparate Populations. And I wanna maybe give a little bit of a different framework. So talk about understanding really health inequities in HIV outcomes. And the difference is when we talk about a disparity, we're talking about differences in outcomes, differences in HIV incidence, differences in you know viral suppression, and differences in the social determinants of health, say access to affordable housing. When we talk about health equity, what we're saying is, what are um, you know the both um, in vulnerable populations? What are the systemic um, as well as actionable or changeable, unjust and unfair barriers that exist. And what and it's important to understand really both aspects. And so in how we measure progress on health equity is really to understand um, the reductions in um, the disparities that we are measuring. And so I'm going to um, provide an overview of the HIV epidemic here in the US, I think you've had a little bit of this already, and talk about both the disparities and the inequities in HIV care outcomes, and then explore um, some of the strategies that we could potentially use in um, acting on these systemic um, inequities as we try to improve these disparities. So as you all may be familiar, in the US, we have a little over a million people um, living uh, with HIV, it's estimated, we've had about 700,000 deaths since the beginning of the epidemic. And HIV in the US is increasingly concentrated in the US South which makes up about a third of the population but over 50% of all new infections. Also increasingly concentrated, of course, in racial and ethnic minorities, as well as gender um, and sexual minorities, and particularly among the uninsured and underinsured. So certainly I'm already sort of painting a picture when we're talking about vulnerable populations. And in terms of how we're doing on these outcomes, this is the latest care continuum um, made by the CDC, where it's estimated close to 90% of people are aware of their diagnosis, but we have a significant drop off when we're talking about retention in care, as well as viral suppression. And then let's look at that nuance. So when we talk about these vulnerable populations, so in the black, we have the whole population with all of these, uh, with all of the outcomes. In the solid red are youth ages 13 to 24. And as you can see, and they are the least likely to be aware of their HIV diagnosis and and the resultant um, additional outcomes subsequent to that. And this, um, it's always on these charts, it's always important to know what's in your denominator. So this is undiagnosed and diagnosed. So people who are not aware of their infection as well as aware of their infection. And then in particular, you see differences in outcomes among black and African-Americans and then injection drug use. So again, sort of that framework. And I think it's really important to understand this context, because how are we doing compared to other high-income countries around the world? And we're dead last. And what is the differences in their, you know, um, in in their sort of environment informing those outcomes versus ours? And I know we all have a lot of ideas as to what exactly is framing that. And so this study that was published about 10 years ago, interestingly looked at um, HIV, uh, development of HIV events after diagnosis and, and parsed it out by sex, race, and geographic location. And what they found was, is that women, non-white women um, living in the South had the worst outcomes of all populations. But I thought it was interesting that the title says sex, race, and geographic region as somehow those are individual informants of these outcomes. When In actuality, it's the context all around that that informs these outcomes. And the other thing to understand um, as we we think about interventions to improve outcomes is that engagement is a dynamic process. The care continuum is a snapshot, but truly engagement is dynamic. So um, Kim Powers in North Carolina, I think did this really great study illustrating exactly that. So she looked at surveillance data. So after somebody is diagnosed and used the CD4 and viral loads that are reported to, um, you know, mandatorily reported uh, to the health department to see what happens after diagnosis. And as you can see, about a quarter of people get in care, stay in care, quarter people never really get in care. And then in between, we have everybody else. Some people get in care and fall out. Some people aren't in care for a while and get in. What are the informants that impact or how that inform these changes and these patterns? And how can we act on them so we can shift everybody up to the green pattern, as it were? And so I think um, a great framework that I use in a lot of my research proposals and as we're developing and trying to implement some of these evidence-based interventions is the social ecological model of HIV. It was initially developed for HIV prevention, but I think can certainly um, be adapted and has been adapted for HIV treatment. So it acknowledges that there are multiple levels. The first one is sort of, I think, as clinicians, we're intimately familiar with is that individual level. You know, so what's going on in that person's life? What are substance use issues, mental health issues, affordable housing? However, that you know is informing our engagement and care, and how are we making sure we're acting on it? Then the next is to look at their network. You know, what in in who they're interacting with? What is the STI incidence? What what is going on with substance use and access in their communities and and needle sharing in that? The third level, I think, is another level that we kind of understand a little bit more is when we talk about community level factors. So when we talk about, um, you know, uh, stigma and not just stigma against, you know, or about related to HIV, but stigma with relation to even things like poverty or gender identity or sexual orientation, as it were. Um, And then we talk about social and societal level factors. uh, or social and structural level factors, I'm sorry. And so those are things like the policies that are in place um, that are important in terms of strategies to end the epidemic. So things like Medicaid expansion, you know, you guys are in, some of you are in here in California where we look very enviously towards y'all um, sitting in Alabama, but that would be a critical intervention that we would like to implement in our state. You know, what are, their, what are the needle syringe um, or needle exchange uh, policies? And then we we have the epidemic stage. So that's looking sort of more globally, the um, incidence of, of diseases um, nationally. So, um, and then I can't, you know. Um, and not acknowledge the fragmented healthcare delivery in the US and how uninsured and underinsured status really impacts our HIV outcomes. So it's estimated that um, insurance coverage among adults um, with HIV in 2018, and this is data from Kaiser Family Foundation, about 11% were uninsured, but of course that does not capture underinsured or having access. We have a very, I think, um, generous program under the Ryan White system. And as everybody knows, if people engage with Ryan White, they do very well. And the challenge is really making sure that we are providing that access and getting that engagement. Unfortunately, our care system is very fractured. So testing, prevention, and care can be in very different centers, private clinics, public health clinics, federally qualified health centers, academic health centers, a pregnant woman can actually have to be seen in almost three different places or postpartum where she's getting her own care, she's getting her pregnancy postpartum care and has to take her infant in other places. And then funding, I think, is also um, a challenge. You might have private insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, where the state determines your eligibility. And then of course, our federal Ryan White clinics. And I think when we talk about health insurance and HIV outcomes, let's really look at our population at risk. So we're talking, when we talk about sort of, you know, the highest incidence population in terms of youth, you know, 19 to 34, this also happens to be the population that is at highest risk for uninsured, also in the Medicaid um, non-expansion states. So again, providing that framework. So what is the role of Rapid Start in addressing these health inequities? So this is my first question um, to you all as um, clinicians. So on average, how long does it take from the time of HIV diagnosis or referral to your clinic. I know some settings you are the ones making the diagnosis and starting care, and in some settings you're receiving the referral. So whatever is your local context as to being aware of somebody's diagnosis to initiation of ART. So just to try to get a sense of that. I'm really interested um, to see where we are. Getting some responses, hopefully. Lots of people responding. Is this something I have to do? Oh, I'm so sorry. I was just like waiting for it to show up. So this is, um, so about half of people, uh, so we have half of respondents having within um, seven days. Wow, one, 20% are responding less than 24 hours. Um, and about the same um, within two weeks or so, and then less um, within 30 days or, or over 30 days. Okay, so so let's talk about equity um, in uh, initiation of ART. So this data uh, from the CDC actually used the CDC Medical Monitoring Project data to look at um, time from diagnosis to initiation based on race, as well as based on HIV risk factor. And what they found that compared to to whites, black African-Americans had a much longer time to ART initiation or even ever ART initiation. And then compared to heterosexual male transmission that women um, with heterosexual transmission and MSM had also longer time to ART initiation or ever uh, initiation of ART. Another study looking at differences in outcomes of black versus white MSM, again, um, from the um, CDC using the National HIV um, Behavioral Survey, found that while black MSM had an increased rate of transmission um, and equivalent linkage to care, we're still less likely um, than white MSM to receive um, an ART prescription. And we know, we have the evidence that early ART initiation works, whether we're talking about, um, you know, the INSIGHT study, um, or certainly um, Temprano and others, and we have um, great evidence from um, meta-analyses looking at initiation of ART likely results in of course, faster time to viral suppression, better ART update, and it may improve um, retention in HIV care. And really addressing inequities across different populations is critical. At that first visit, we can potentially have a source of the disparities that we're measuring here. There may be miscommunications, misunderstandings, Biases that get exhibited, particularly with regards to adherence and affecting um, treatment decisions when we say, you know, oh, this person doesn't have stable housing. How are they going to be able to store their medications? Um, So no versus let's think about ways um, to um, provide the medication in that way. And then it might be, and I think the biggest part is like, you know, it's unconsciously utilized. It's really an outgrowth of our learned patterned recognition skills. And and this has been found even with providers who have very, you know, sort of egalitarian and non discriminatory views. So we really need to talk about, you know, strategies that help build that communication and trust and always come from a place of cultural um, humility, certainly. And rapid ART has been shown to work really in the face of Fairly profound social challenges. So in the rapid model in San Francisco, um, you had people like high rates of homelessness, high rates of uninsured status, um, active um, people with substance use disorder or or major or uh, diagnosed with um, mental health conditions. In Atlanta, the REACH cohort, um, which was their rapid start initiative, they, the overwhelming majority of people in that program were black men in their mid 30s, half were uninsured, you know, fairly low um, income levels. And, um, and the median CD4 count was 146. So still, would benefit from this um, program. And now it's standard of care. So rapid ART, DHHS has given formal endorsement for this. And it's actually part of the national HIV aids strategy that was released this year. And goal two, it articulates to provide same day or rapid, which is defined as within seven days, start of antiretroviral therapy for persons who are able to take it. What to start. Um, so the recommendations are essentially, um, you know, integrase or protease inhibitor um, uh, regimens so with Bictegravir-based big regimen or a Darunivir-based regimen or Dolutegravir based regimen. We're avoiding um, uh, non-nucleosides because of still concerns about transmitted um, mutations. And then of course, Abacavir because of HLA-B5701. And I think at our own settings, you know, we worked through this, even at the 1917 clinic, we've got to think about, you know, what, what are our local settings and how we can adapt them, um, in order to, to accommodate rapid start. We have to make sure we provide education, um, to provider and staff beliefs. We had to go through that as well and training and, and, and understand that we have, um, a con, a, a a way in place to make sure that we're still able to understand patients' readiness and psychosocial comorbidities. Rapid Start is not just giving a pill. like That is not the the success of Rapid Start. It's creating a program that allows us to initiate that contact, get get folks um, started on therapy, sure, but also creating a system that allows us to quickly and rapidly address the most critical factors that might impact um, somebody's linkage or engagement with HIV care. And so the point of this slide is not to read all of the boxes, but this is a reflection of Atlanta's program where they um, looked at on the left-hand side, yeah, left-hand side, you see all of the different steps that were necessary to start ART pre their rapid start program. And then on the post reach side, they, this is when working with their healthcare system, working with their hospital, working with um, their Ryan White, Ryan White program, all of the changes that they were able to make in order to accommodate rapid start. And so I think it's key to understand um, all of the facilitators um, with relation to um, uh, having a rapid start, a successful rapid start program, and then measure your success. See how you're doing on time to ART initiation. See how you're doing on time to viral suppression. So in the last few minutes, I'm going to pivot um, over to talking about long acting um, antiretroviral therapy. And is there a role for this as an intervention in addressing some of these same health inequities. Okay, so next I offer, this is the poll, I offer injectable cabotegravir and injectable rilpivirine to people with HIV with adherence challenges. So agree, disagree, I would consider using it in this population, but I need more data on safety and resistance. I would consider using it in this population, but would like clear recommendations and guidelines, or I have not started using long acting in any patients yet. You just vote on that.
0: to 200.
1: Okay, so I, this is great. This is great to see that, um, that uh, close to, to 40% of people in this room would, o- or are offering um, injectable cabotegravir and pipirine. Um But, you know, I think a good number are also, um, would le- would consider it, which is excellent. Um, and then I think this is true for a lot of places just because of t- um, implementation challenges is you is have not used um, long acting. So going back to when we think about that social ecological model, the first step, the individual barriers, which again as clinicians we're most um, sort of familiar with, it's really trying to understand all of those factors that inform our challenges um, with uh, it, with adherence to both care and treatment, and in what ways we're addressing them. So we talk about we talked a little bit about the demographics in the beginning, right? So like you know things like. Their age, or um, you know, so what what's sort of going on um, in in terms of what population they belong to that informs their adherence, you know, substance use disorders, mental health conditions, poverty as it relates to their competing responsibilities. Can they? you know, take their medications and come to clinic? Or do they have other things going on that they have to do? They have to go to work, they have to go to childcare, they don't have access to transportation. Stigma, again, not just HIV, but all of the other intersectional stigmas that you can think that can inform interaction with healthcare, people simply forgetting to take their medicine. Like, I just forgot. I mean, I sometimes can barely complete a pack. So I complete, you know, when you think about, you know, completing, you know, or taking daily medications, and then there's side effects, GI side effects, CNS side effects that really impact people's um, ability to take medication. So we have a wonderful array um, of options um, for ART, mostly fixed dose combination um, that are available, but um, I want to, you know, posit that what would be fantastic is if we could transition to a patient-centered approach. And so this is, these are the birth control options that are listed um, at bedsider.org. And it's they're fantastic because it, across the top, you can choose sort of what's important to you in this moment, like what's your priority, whether it's most effective, party-ready, STI prevention, you know, you don't want something, uh, you want something hormone-free, you know, or you want do me now. And so thinking of that patient-centered approach Approach, I think, will be critical. And we all are probably familiar with the phase three studies that informed the FDA approval last year, um, both in people who are naive to um, antiretrovirals as well as treatment experienced. Um, fairly high um, viral suppression and success, both in monthly and um, every other month um, success. But these studies did not include people with HIV who face adherence barriers. Currently, the DHH. S guideline give this a three recommendation against the use of long acting in people who have a detectable viral load due to suboptimal adherence and people who have ongoing challenges. Um, you know, and I'll I'll probably you know as you can imagine I kind of disagree with the phrasing of this, but that um, but. Ongoing challenges with retention in HIV care, except in the context of a clinical trial, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So certainly, um, some of the challenges outlined with the uptake and the use of ART, it does—you have—it does require adherence and attention retention in the sense coming in, coming in to take your, um, get your administer your shot. There are legitimate concerns with regards to resistance. It is a two-drug regimen. There is a, a long half-life of the injectable, so you inject. Um, both of the agents and then the um, patient may disappear. What's gonna happen as opposed to fixed dose combination where if they stop taking the medicine, they stop taking all of the medicine. Concerns about side effects unstudied populations, you know, what's going on with women of childbearing potential um, and long acting, and then, of course, um, in younger populations. And the biggest concern overlying, or one of the biggest concerns overlying this is cost and equity. But I think it's important to hear from patients um, about what they're saying about uh, long acting. And um, just to summarize um, these three quotes, I mean, there's just a lot of emphasis on the fact that the long acting, and these are from people who participated in clinical trials, so motivated participants, but they talk about things about how like taking H, the pill every day keeps it present and they don't have to worry about that when they're coming the, the, and getting the shot every month and how it could potentially even impact, you know, their perceptions in terms of stigma as well, not having to keep the medication at home and having that centered in that way. And so, I do want to share a currently, um, our currently enrolling study uh, that um, I have the privilege of co-chairing with um, Jose Castillo-Mencia called the Latitude Study, where we're looking at um, people um, with HIV um, who have a detectable viral load um, and have evidence of non-adherence, um, either because you know they're out of care, or they really haven't been adherent to HIV. I have this QR code um, periodically to uh, for anyone if you want to refer patients. So we um, initially um, have people. Um, started on um, their step one, which is a oral incentivized period to get them to undetectable. And then they get randomized, either continuing on oral therapy, as well as, or versus starting the injectable. And then folks at 52 weeks, they can cross over to injectable or continue on um, injectable. And, and um, um, our primary outcomes are at uh, 48 weeks at step two. And I just wanna outline the importance of doing studies in this population as it represents um, the people who are really impacted by the epidemic. So ATLAS, Um, which was the study for people who are treatment experienced versus um, our latitude study so far, where we've enrolled now 177 patients into step two, where the majority are black and African-American. We have um, 7% uh, transgender um, and 30% uh, female uh, sex at birth, and a median CD4 count of 263. And then of course, comparing to Atlas, um, which has a very different population. And so there is a growing body of evidence in using um, long-acting in patients, including those with vibremia. So this is a case report looking at somebody who'd been prescribed four different oral regimens without success. And so far, six months out is doing... Um, really well. And then, of course, in San Francisco, we have the first uh, demonstration project at Ward 86, where they reported on enrolling 51 patients um, who are, I think, have a lot of challenges, homeless, substance use disorder, mental health conditions as part of their pop-up clinic, which has a tremendous amount of wraparound services, um, and about, I think, 13 people um, with viremia, who so far, as of their last data cutoff, are doing well. And same in Atlanta, um, they have started that reported um, recently on early experience of inject, of implementing long acting, a lot of challenges with implementation. So certainly um, they they describe in detail all of the different steps um, necessary. So I'll just end with, you know, This is something to consider this is not something that i'm saying you know we're carte blanche everyone needs to get it but rather than going immediately no um because this is where the guidelines are let's let's think about what we can do um you know if we really want to change and um you know end the epidemic and change the trajectory of what's going on how can we make sure our systems are accommodating that so we want to narrow rather than widen the disparity gap as we're trying to reach health equity. So this is, I think a great picture of the difference between equality and equity, that some people may need a little bit more support. Some may just need a nudge or um, an appointment reminder, but some people may need help. So we are able to say LA long acting is available on our clinic. We'll do what we can to ensure that you benefit from it. And that's it, thank you.
0: Um, come on. But uh, One comment I'll make is that, you know, one of the disparities or barriers that has been removed is because of the Ryan White program, the people that don't have insurance actually can get access. And, and that I think we shouldn't overlook. It's a real I, mean, I know we're preaching to the choir of this for, for sure, but I, I think it's a huge thing. Question I have is when you look at your distribution of countries, Switzerland being on the far right. Has anybody looked at what they're doing? I know they have a more homogeneous population in general, but are they doing things differently than what we are doing in the U.S. that we can learn from their experience?
1: So I think that probably the most glaring difference is most of them have, you you know, national health care systems, right, um, in place. Switzerland is a little bit different. They have um, a region, they have private health insurance, exchanges that people can purchase, but then are part of it. So it's a little bit different, but I think, you know, sort of the, the most obvious sort of difference between those countries and our countries are, is, is that, um, in, in that way. And I think other things are, um, uh, sort of a little bit more consolidated um, care. It's interesting, I was just in Australia last month um, giving a talk and anytime I put up like our care continuum slide anywhere um, outside of the US and sometimes even outside of the South, I always get like a, you know, shock. Um, and it's interesting there, um, uh, HIV care is really sort of decentralized from specialty care, which is very different um, than it is here. And I think those of us who work in, like other like resource limited settings kind of experience that as well. So um, so I think less fragmented um, in many ways. So I think a lot of lessons learned, but then we also have a different history. You mentioned, you know, homogeneous population. I mean, we have to confront things like racism. We have to, you know, in the structural inequities in a way that they don't necessarily have to. And so, so what works there works there, um, but we certainly have to confront all of the different issues that inform our outcomes here. Right. So we have a lot of
0: questions. If we can, we'll, I'll do them quick and quick answer and we'll get as many as we can. One is about homelessness is a huge thing. What do you recommend or what can the clinics do to collaborate and break through that barrier?
1: Yeah, it's a huge barrier. I mean, I know we talk about you know California being amazing, but wow, like the affordable housing is, is really such a challenge here. So I think um, you know we have the HOPWA programs that, You know, funding has been um, uh, challenging. I I can share, you know, at the 1917 clinic. Um, we, using our 340B funds, have been, been able to collaborate with one of our community partners right. um, in order to help fund housing programs. So it's going to, I think, take a lot of sort of this creative outside of the box kind of thinking and being very entrepreneurial um, in our approach as we're trying to, to bring those people in and, and have that tie into their ability to engage in care and retain sort of like the carrot at the end of the stick. But yes, absolutely a huge, a, an important issue for us to
0: address? So I'll go ahead and read this question now, but I'm sure we're going to get it uh, also with Dr. Landovitz's talk. But the whole issue about the cost of uh, cabotegravir, ropivirine, and gaining access, um, it's been a universal question as I've walked around the last two days. I know you're going to address it in the workshop this afternoon, but uh, just briefly, um, c- a couple of talking points, one, two, three, about what Everyone can do to improve access and how uh, what, what your pointed recommendations are?
1: So, I think in, in improving access, you know, there's always, I'll, I'll always put number one is advocacy as providers, you know, like we have to talk, we have to make sure we're talking to our, you know, Medicaid, Blue Cross, you know, whatever our payer of record is, ADAP, however it was to, to really, I think, advocate for that. I think. Um, again, being entrepreneurial and collaborative in going through the morass of like, is this a pharmacy benefit? Is this a medical benefit? And figuring that out, we're, we're working at our clinic with, um, with uh, one of our specialty pharmacies and helping us um, navigate those things. And then again, I think um, always thinking about, um, you know um, what systems you all have in place for um, you know, scheduling um, visits and, and doing reminders and seeing how you can use that same framework in making sure that people who you want to use this in um, are able to come in so you don't get yeah.
0: yeah, it sort of requires setting up a parallel mm-hmm. appointment system uh, for if you're going to do this large a number. Um, any guesses as to why the um, epidemic is worse in the South, especially so- among uh minority women?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, again, some of the same systemic um, challenges that we see in almost all health conditions. So we talk about the stroke belt, for example, being worse, you know, running through the South, um, you know, right through Alabama, um, cancer outcomes. And I think the same inequities or the systemic issues um, with regards to, you know, poverty, racism, um, health access, health mistrust, um, or mistrust of the healthcare system that really inform those outcomes are are extremely um, relevant in HIV. I think we also have additional um, challenge with regards, I think higher levels of both internalized and externalized stigma with regards to HIV um, gender identity, as well as, um, a sexual orientation.
0: So one question following up on your cabotegravir commentary, um, especially with the HHS guidelines saying not to do this, but if somebody, is it indicated yet for, uh, use of people that have a detectable virus when you suspect adherence, or should they wait until the study comes out? uh, what's your advice?
1: So, you know, I have to put like two hats on here. So as you know, co-chair of, um, latitude, please refer them to the latitude study. So we can get data on that. That's, that's the population health level question at the individual level. When I'm seeing a patient who maybe cannot enroll the study or doesn't have that access, let me talk to them. Let me see what's their individual context and consider, you know, we have growing level of evidence of, of, Potential utility. So, so I know you wanted a quick answer with that, but but I gotta I gotta advocate in both ways.
0: Yeah. So, what about? I won't use the word rapid. I'll say immediate start mm-hmm. at the time of diagnosis. I mean, obviously, people are getting their medicine right away, mm-hmm. so it's not, there's going to be a difference there. But what about the one, two, three year follow up of that? Is it is it holding up that there's a major difference? or is the juice not worth the squeeze? You just kind of do it in a different way.
1: So I actually took that slide out. So in looking at it, what we are seeing, the big highlight is that there is a faster time to viral suppression but we're not seeing, um, too many differences so far in terms in retention rate. Mm -hmm. And to me, how I interpret that is, wow, faster time to viral suppression. That's great. You know, we're having less time in terms of, you know, people, um, you know, getting, you know, for their, maybe not for their individual, but certainly public health outcomes. And we're not seeing, um, any disadvantages to this strategy.
0: Yeah. I, I would add just anecdotally that, um, there is a lot of expense and effort not not just money but time and and just like with setting up a parallel for following people in the clinic that you want to treat with long-acting injectables um, it's a big effort to be on site where diagnoses are made and my personal thing and i don't know what you think but the beauty of having someone come into the clinic um It it sort of reinforces the provider-patient relationship, and maybe that's required, uh, I I don't know, for longer-term outcomes. Um, What do you recommend to deal with implicit uh, provider bias? that might be involved in some health disparities?
1: Yeah, no. So I think ongoing, you know, training with regards to that is absolutely critical. And it's interesting. I was having this conversation with um, somebody else. When we talk about like CMEs, we talk about, okay, you know, do I know the latest and greatest on um, medication or opportunistic infections or adverse events? And, And the one thing I feel like I don't get enough CME on or opportunity to do it are things like Patient-provider communication, or addressing um, these sorts of, you know, these particular issues, um, and and I've I've done these trainings, I've taken these quizzes, and it's it's really you know, enlightening to me to sort of, um, conf- you know, confront those and make sure that I'm, I'm consciously addressing those in each visit. So I, I hate to add like another training that we have to do, but I think it's critical because they're, un- you know, in most cases, it's unconscious. Nobody's sitting there saying, hmm, how can I destroy this person's or, you know, this particular population? It's more, okay, what, what are, what are some of our patterns that are, that are actually worsening some of the disparities we're trying to
0: improve. One, one question here, just clarifying the ACTG study, um, you're getting patients essentially suppressed in the first 24 weeks on an oral therapy before using long acting?
1: So that is, that is the sort of development. Right now, as, as, if you get suppressed as soon as 12 weeks and shortly, shortly, it will be as soon as four weeks on oh. oral therapy, you will then get randomized to either injectable or or uh, continuing it. on oral so we're shortening shortening the time this is a consequence of developing a study protocol before fda approval and so now trying yeah. to to keep up with that yeah.
0: great oh well that's wonderful thanks so much and i'll just comment that the a lot of questions about how to gain access. How do you get insurance to pay for it? How do you get your app on board? And some of those details will be done going Back over in the, the workshop. workshop. And a bunch of questions here on the use of long acting as prep, and we're gonna get that this afternoon or later this morning with Rafi Lindovitz. Thank you so much, Adia. Great.